grocery margins are in the single digits on the retailer level. They're on the single digits. So it just needs to change. And that's where we fit in. We can actually bring the farms closer to the people and closer to distribution centers. When you talk about vertical farm in a larger context, controlled environment agriculture, CEA as it's known, you'll see that there's vertical farming, there's greenhouses, there's all sorts of, there's hydroponics, aquaponics. Um, there are all sorts of methodologies to control the inputs and the variables in the environment around the plants that are growing. But when you do it 18 feet tall and you do it with sunlight in the size of a football field, roughly, we can produce 1.9 million pounds of produce. Welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host, Vedya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Eddie Badrina, CEO of Eden Green Technology. Everyone deserves nutritious, fresh, and safe food. He joins us from Dallas, Texas. Welcome, Eddie. Thanks so much for having me, Vidya. One of the challenges of the 21st century is that we have to feed 7 to 10 billion by 2050, and we have to do that sustainably. According to USDA, agricultural activities contribute about 10.5% of the greenhouse gases, but these same activities offer us ample opportunities to reduce greenhouse gases. How is that possible? The problem that we're trying to solve and what you illuminated, you've got a population density that's going up and you've got a demand for food and specifically for leafy greens, for herbs, for vegetables, and even meat alternatives through plant proteins. So you've got that driving demand and population growth. And then because of what you said, both in terms of climate, as well as in terms of topsoil erosion, we've got a diminishing supply of greens. And so that's really the problem that we're trying to solve is this delta of demand and then the supply piece. And really you have to solve for it is you either have to either find more ways to make more produce with less environmental impact and or you bring the farms closer to the people to reduce the transportation costs and all the emissions that go along with that. It's a multivariable problem that we're facing, and I think there are a lot of different solutions. We just eat in green. We're thinking about it, we think in a much different way that solves for both of the population growth as well as the environmental and topsoil degradation. One of the hot topics recently, off late, is regenerative agriculture. Yeah. And we talk about how the soil has the capability to absorb carbon. The regenerative agriculture, at, if it's done at scale, can absolutely repair some of the environmental damage as well as regenerate and renew the topsoil that's there, the nutrients in the topsoil. The challenge with regenerative farming is it's not done at scale right now. I mean, you have to have wholesale changes to the agriculture industry in order for that to take effect. So the movement is good and I think it's needed. I just don't know if it's going to be in time. 
right? There's such a huge, because regenerative farming has lower volumes overall, it still doesn't solve for that delta. It only solves for a little bit of the supply and it solves for the environmental piece. It doesn't solve for the growing demand of produce. I think it's a good long-term solution. It's going to have to, it's predicated. The assumptions are, is that there's widespread adoption across the commercial industry. And that's just a really high bar. That's a really high hurdle. So there's got to be another way. I think that's where we come in. It's not going to be one solution. Um, regenerative farming is not the solution. It's a solution. It's a part of the solutions that are going to get us to meet consumer demands, but not continue to degrade the environment. Like you said, for that overall change, there are so many stakeholders who have to change the way they till, the way they, what the seeds are sowed, how the machines are made, you know, the earth tilling machines. And in fact, in regenerative farming, you don't even till. Right. So there has to be a change all across several industries to bring about that change. So while that is happening, we are talking about vertical farms. Yeah. What is a vertical farm? So a vertical farm is one way of solving that problem. When you talk about vertical farm in a larger context, controlled environment agriculture, CEA as it's known, is something that I think your listeners ought to be really digging in and researching. What does CEA look like? If you get a perspective of controlled environment agriculture, you'll see that there's vertical farming, there's greenhouses, there's all sorts of, there's hydroponics, aquaponics. Um, there are all sorts of methodologies to basically controlled environment agriculture to control the inputs and the variables in the environment around the plants that are growing. So for a vertical farm, vertical farms are trying to control our, the inputs of nutrition and light and air and CO2 in a format that blocks out the things that are detrimental to a plant's growth, like weather patterns, both seasonal as well as cloudy days and hail and rain and wind, right? So you have seasonal patterns, you have weather patterns, they block out or they eliminate some of the environmental factors like pesticides, because in an enclosed environment, you should not have any pests. If you don't have pests, then you don't need pesticides. They are just trying to control those external variables as much as they can in an environment that they can grow much higher, 18, 20, 24 feet tall. So that's what vertical farming is in its essence. On the other end of the spectrum on CEA is you have greenhouses, your commercial greenhouses that you see that are not just growing produce, they're also growing ornamentals like roses and tulips and whatnot. And those greenhouses are great because, they, again, they're controlling the environment, but they're actually using sunlight. Vertical farming, except for us, vertical farming cannot utilize sunlight because of the way they're structured. They're basically flat tray upon flat tray upon flat tray, and those trays have to be lit up with LED lighting or some sort of lighting to provide light for the plants. Greenhouses solve for that because they provide light through sunlight. The way I visualized vertical farming I thought it was just up against the wall. Like I, you know, I went to a garden show where they had these felt bags and you would put the soil. And in fact, I 
picked up one or two thinking like, okay, I'll have a wall or at least part of a wall in my living room with ornamental plants, you know. But it was really a hard way to have some green in your house. You could have water damage on your wall, on the floor. It wasn't that easy as they said it would be, you know? Yeah, it's not easy. That's the short answer. Vertical farming is not easy. And I think that's the challenge with vertical farming is if you look at these indoor vertical farms, and I can name off a number of our peers, whether it's Aero Farms or Plenty or gosh, Calera, ours is another one. All of these vertical farms, if you look at them, they're trays upon trays upon trays. Think of like farmland upon farmland upon farmland stacked like a substrate. Well, in between each of those stacks, you have to have lights because the stacks are, they're covering up each other. So you couldn't possibly do that in a greenhouse. It just doesn't make sense light-wise and plants need light to grow. So what you end up having is there are stacks with lights. All of those are really, really expensive to build. They're expensive to maintain. Think about the light electricity costs of all of those lights in there. And then, like you said, they're very temperamental. While you eliminate some of the environmental factors, you start adding expenses. So all the vertical farms you see right now don't make money and they won't make money for a long, long time because they're too expensive to build and they're too expensive to run to then produce salads and lettuce and kale and arugula and spinach at a price that the normal consumer can afford. So the ones that you do see, they're selling produce at a very high premium. Well, that's good if you're on either coast or you're in a big city and you have a lot of disposable income. But for the rest of America and the rest of the world, that's not going to cut it. It's not affordable. In long term, it's not, you know, in your terms, it's not a mindful business. There's no sustainability around it economically. It's just being subsidized. And a subsidized economy is no better than where we are now in terms of agriculture. All of our farmland is subsidized. That's not an economically sustainable way to go. So in addition to the population demand and the degradation of topsoil and the environment, all in there is you have to be economically sustainable and affordable for the consumer. That's the biggest hurdle you're going to run into. So vertical farms are not just horizontal farms taken vertical. There is something more to it. Yes, there is something more to that. Think about beds of plants that are just bunk beds, but there are like 15 bunks, right? That's a vertical farm. How tall is a typical vertical farm? A typical vertical farm, it can depend. Like some of our peers go up to 36, 40 feet. But just think of bunk beds full of plants and lights, and that's what you've got. I mean, that's the best way to kind of put it. We are different. Eating green is different because we have been able to take those horizontal bunk beds and turn them on that side and then shine light and use sunlight. So we have combined the density of vertical farms with the economics and the use of sunlight of greenhouses. You put those two together and all of a sudden you've got vertical farms, like walls of vertical of vertical plants just bathed in sunlight. And that makes it really, really efficient, really economically sustainable. There's long-term value in what we're doing versus some of our other peers. Eddie, we can see each other in the video and your hand gesturings are amazing and giving me a visual, but our listeners can't. Can you just explain 
describe exactly what it looks like. Yeah. Like you said, a bunk bed turned on its side. If a vertical farmer bunk beds with plants and lights, vertical greenhouse is like 18 foot vines spaced a foot apart in long rows that are yards long. And then you put 110 rows in a greenhouse. Think about 18 foot vines, call it 100 vines per row, and then 110 rows per greenhouse. That's what you have. That is an eating green greenhouse. We're a little bit larger. One of our modules is a little bit larger than a football field. But when you do it 18 feet tall and you do it with sunlight, what happens is in the size of a football field, roughly, we can produce 1.9 million pounds of produce out of that one area. I have two questions. You said that the vines are a foot apart. So how do you get the sunlight in there? For your listeners, if they can imagine the 18-foot vertical towers a foot apart all the way down a row, and then each row is six feet apart from each other. Got it. For people to pass through, for the harvesters to pass through. So you've got this row after row after row of all these vines a foot apart. It's a The best way, honestly, for your viewers to get a sense of it is actually to go to our website. It's very difficult to describe in words, much more so than just your typical vertical farm. Uh, But if you go to our website and you look at the photos or you go to any of our social social platforms like Instagram or LinkedIn, Facebook, it's all just Eden Green Tech. If you go to Eden Green Tech on any of those platforms, you will see photo after photo of what I'm talking about. And the second question I had is that pests play a part in our ecology. You're not killing them, but you know there's pollination, there's crossbreeding, natural. They play a part, right? So how are, and say, if I'm completely exaggerating, say all farming goes to a vertical farming in a greenhouse. That wouldn't be good, right? No. I, again, we are not the silver bullet. We are part of the solution for sustainable farming, just sustainable farming practices. I will take your statement with a caveat. Not all pests are additive to the growing environment. In fact, really no pests are. There are certain bugs, but no real pests are added to that growing environment. A lot of the reason that pests are pests is because they're usually negative consequence to the plants. And so those are the bugs that we are trying to keep out, whether for cotton, it's the weevil for certain types of plants, it's the ladybug, right? Or the aphid or, you know, the grub worm, any of that, the thrip, there are all sorts of bugs that just don't have any use other than honestly, from a topsoil perspective, they're more useful when they die because then they provide, right, the nutrients after they decompose. You know, from our perspective, we're trying to keep bugs out so we don't have to use pesticides. And because we harvest, so one of our, a typical plant in our system, depends on the plant, but a typical plant will actually grow to a saleable size in 21 days. So we can have up to 17 harvests a year in one of our greenhouses. So when you turn it like that, it really is, you know, it needs nutrients in the water. It needs carbon dioxide in the air and it needs the right temperature of the water as well as temperature in the air. And that's what it needs to grow. 
all the other stuff is nice to have, but what it needs to grow nutritiously and for the taste profile to be really good is water, air, and nutrients. And that's what we control. You mentioned that your football size greenhouse produces 1.9 million pounds of produce. If we used conventional agriculture, how much would that be? That's equivalent to 40 acres of open field farming. And a football field is how big? One and a half acres. <laughs> so here's where the environmental impact starts to really make sense. We use 99% less land. We use 95% less water. So if you can imagine a 40 acres of farming will waste close to eight to 900,000 gallons of water a year. Waste, not use, waste. It uses a lot more than that. On our end, while we use 100,000 gallons a month, we only waste 1,000 gallons a month. We waste 35 gallons a day. Let me put that in housing terms. One of our houses, your house and my house, will waste 45,000 gallons of water a year. Wow, those are pretty astonishing numbers. Yes. But you don't use soil, right? You use hydroponics to grow your produce, right? That's correct. We use a certain type of hydroponics called NFT. and It's a nutrient film technique type of hydroponics to grow. So in that, we do have a grow medium. It can be either rock wool, which is literally what it sounds like. It's it's lava rock heated to over a thousand degrees, spun into a wool-like consistency, and then placed a, a seed or two or three are placed in that rock wool. And that's where the plant will actually grow. It's a, it's a very, very common grow medium. We actually use other grow mediums that are a combination of cocoa husk and peat moss, but no soil. That's one of the many ways that we just try to optimize the plant growth. And, but what it ends up being is we can produce a lot of produce, a lot of plants in a small amount of space. And when you take that and you think about, okay, a lot of plants in a small amount of space and it's economically efficient, then you can start to think about instead of delivering from farms to people, you bring the farms closer to the people. So not a lot of your listeners may know this, but 90% of all lettuce comes from California for the, the entire United States comes from California. Wow. If you think about the transportation costs to get it from California to Indiana, California, Texas, California, all the way across the coasts, it's very expensive financially. It's also very expensive to the environment. Yes. And it has to be probably in refrigerator trucks, right? Because they would wilt right away. Yeah. Oh yeah. Our industry right now, it, with the price that you pay for, for greens, what's accounted in that price is 30% waste. If you can imagine that in no other industry is 30% waste acceptable, but somehow in the ag industry, it's acceptable. So, and now with the pandemic, what used to cost 900 to $1,000 to deliver from California to Texas now costs three to $4,000 to deliver. I don't know about you, but in a low margin business, that type of increase in transportation costs will kill any margins that you have. So now you've got really expensive transportation accounting for 30% waste in an industry that's already being subsidized and it's having 
overall negative environmental impacts, you've got to change that system. And the margins, like you mentioned, in the grocery industry are like very, very low, like a percent or two. Grocery margins are in the single digits on the retailer level. They're on the single digits. So it just needs to change. And that's where we fit in. We can actually bring the farms closer to the people and closer to distribution centers because we're affordable. And I think that's the last piece is greenhouses, while they're economically viable, they're still far away from the consumer. One acre and a half of ours is equal to six acres of a greenhouse, which is equal to 40 acres of traditional farmland. So if we know that traditional farmland isn't solving for transportation, logistics, cost, spoilage and waste, and then food safety, well, greenhouses sort of solve for that. They solve for a lot of that. They don't solve for the distribution piece. They're still miles and miles away from the consumer because good luck finding six acres that's that you can buy at a price plus the greenhouse that's on top of it producing those margins. It just doesn't make economic sense to have six acres remotely close to a population. So that's where we come in. If we are able to be in which we are economically sustainable in a small footprint, it solves for both the waste the food safety, the consistency, as well as the distribution problem. And then it makes it affordable for everyone. I see what you're saying. But what are the produce that can be grown in your greenhouses? You kept talking about greens, but Mm -hmm. people eat a lot more things other than greens. Oh, yeah. We have tested over 250 varietals of produce in our system. From a commercial perspective, we're upping to about 100 different varietals of leafy greens, herbs, and berries, and peppers that can be grown commercially viable in our system. I cannot understate the commercially viable piece because it's all well and good until you run out of money, and then it just becomes a nonprofit or a subsidized industry. Silverspun Goods is a woman-owned business and community supporter. They make products that are kind to your skin, kind to the environment, and kind to the community. To learn more about this mindful business, visit silverspungoods.com. When you talk about vines, the first thing that comes to my mind because I'm from India and a lot of the vegetables grow on vines. The beans, the ridge gourd, the white pumpkin, red pumpkin, they're all vegetables that grow on vines. Yeah. And you have a controlled environment, right? Right. So have you played around with any of these other international uh, vegetables? We have. So, I mean, I would say our system works best with internally. We like to joke, we work with outies and not innies. So if they grow outwards and their root base is relatively small, I mean, relatively, I mean, it could be, we've grown tomato plant in our system, then that works. If you're working with tubers and other things that are buried or have like really woody, bushy type stems and roots that works less efficiently in our system. Having said that, we're always experimenting. And so we've got cucumbers growing out of our system. We've got peppers. We've got some nasturtium, which are edible flowers that we can grow. And then herbs, all types of herbs. We've got rosemary and thyme and mint and basil all grow really, really well in our system. How do you harvest these? Because are there machines already in, available in the market which will 
scale up 18 feet to harvest the lettuce from the top. Yeah, that's the great part. I think it's something that people don't understand and appreciate until we mention it, which is we really pride ourselves on using automation where it's needed, but using people more. We really believe that a redemptive part of our greenhouses and our organization is the ability to employ people, not just in a dead end job, but to employ people in an industry that's growing, no pun intended, by leaps and bounds every year. Our margins actually accommodate for a greenhouse employing 25 to 30 people in it. Some of your listeners may be saying, well, that's great. Don't you have a labor shortage? And the answer is no, because one, again, we're located in and around urban areas. And two, we're not working with migrant workers. We don't have a migrant work environment. We're harvesting and planting and packing every single day. All of a sudden, it's a living day's wage with health benefits for folks who don't need a college degree, right? And they're working with plants. It's much different than working in some pack house distribution warehouse center. That's something that we're really excited about. We've received from the community that we're in and the communities that we're thinking about planting our greenhouses. We received so much support because they actually like the fact that it's not going to be a huge facility full of robots that will actually have people in there from the community working in there. Nutrition is a crucial part for an optimal output. How do you get nutrition into the plants? Nutrition in the plants comes from a nutrient mix that we have of both organic and then just natural nutrients that we have that are put into the water and then distributed to the plants through that water flow. It really is the nutrients for any plant comes through water. That's the nutrient delivery system for any plant grown in soil, grown in some sort of different substrate or medium. It comes through the water flow. The way I visualize it is there are irrigation tubes which are going through these and then maybe you drop the nutrition solution through the tubes and it goes no so actually it's quite different for us that maybe the solution for other vertical farms and greenhouses but for us we have the nutrients in a tank with water and that water at a certain temperature which is optimal for nutrition uptake by the plant that water is pumped through with nutrients through our towers from the top all the way to the bottom at a very high speed So it's basically an all-you-can-eat buffet for plants. So when it's pumped from an acre and a half away to the plant spot, back to the pump an acre and a half in 90 seconds, what you get is this water flow of nutrient-rich water that's flowing over the plant's roots, and that's doing it 24-7. It really is an all-you-can-eat buffet for the plants. So it's not a one-time thing. It It is all the time. It's all the time. And that differentiates us from a lot of the aquaponics where you see they're sitting in like, they're sitting in water. The problem with sitting in water is that the nutrient mix is not consistent from top to bottom, from where the plants are all the way to the bottom of the tank where it's sitting in. The second thing, more importantly, is that water is stagnant. 
it's not being circulated at a high enough level. And so we've actually seen, there's a peer of ours named Bright Farms. They had the first E. coli, I think it was, but it was a recall because there was a bacterial contaminant in that water. It was because it was what we call deep water culture of plants. We don't do that. We actually flow the water through the plant's roots. So it provides aeration that the plants need to breathe. That's why you can actually drown plants. Plants need to breathe. So it provides aeration, provides the exact water temperature. It provides all the nutrients that it could need. And it does it in a way that's clean because as soon as it goes from to the plant and back through our system, then it gets filtered and then it starts all over again. So do you have a degree in agriculture or is your background in farming? So my background is in neither. So my business story, if you will, is very circuitous. So I started out at Texas A&M, but actually my degree was in psychology and I just learned about relationships, you know, and how to navigate those relationships. That took me to Washington, D.C., where I worked. I worked in government for six years on some global issues and then was President Bush's Asian American spokesperson for two years. After that, I came back to Dallas. I came back to Texas. I started a marketing technology company here in 2010. Then I sold it in 2016. I bought it back 11 months later, and then I continued to run it until I jumped over uh, to Eating Green about two and a half years ago. So my experience is in starting and scaling organizations. I leave it to my experts on my team, my head of horticulture, my engineers, the inventors of the technology, my operations people. I have built teams around them so they can run this thing really well and continually innovate and optimize these greenhouses. You know, it's a challenge with a lot of the folks in our industry is they've grown up in the industry and they're so set in their ways that they can't see the way out in terms of change in order to meet that demand that we talked about in the beginning, right? They can't see how to move the farms closer to the people. It takes a technologist who's empathetic with the consumer as well as with all the other market and environmental factors to be able to say, okay, maybe there's a better way. Let's talk about your customers. Who is a typical customer for Eden Green Technology? So a typical customer is actually a supplier, a grower, a distributor, a grocery retailer. So we are much different than a lot of our peers in that a lot of our peers have their own brand that's on the packaging and they're selling that brand at a premium price. We've gone the opposite directions. Right. Like Plenty was bought by Walmart and actually I checked their website. They have all the microgreens and the greens packed in Plenty labels. Absolutely. They are pursuing the route of selling really high margin premium goods. And that's great for the people that can afford them. We've gone the opposite direction. We actually want to be infrastructure. We want to be the company that no one knows outside of the industry, but in the industry, everyone looks to and says, yeah, that they are the standard by which we're based. Because we, if we're infrastructure, then we are providing a good to everyone. There's no premium electricity. It just is. And electricity is provided by infrastructure companies. There's some premium internet, but internet is becoming an infrastructure. That's the way that we want to do it. And food is one of the most basic necessity. Yes. 
that a man needs to survive. And why is that so important to you? For it to be affordable, to be able to feed the masses sustainably, why is that important to you? It's important because that's the genesis of our company and that's the key to long-term sustainability. So I can go into both of those. The genesis of our company was actually the two founders, the two inventors in South Africa. They've since here moved to the United States and they're my CTO and COO. But they really saw a need because they were feeding people in their community and a five-year-old boy came up and started stuffing his pockets with candy. And they said, hey, slow down. You don't need to do that. And they asked his teacher, okay, why is he doing that? And the teacher said, well, it's actually because it's not for him. It's for his three-year-old sister at home. It's not his day to eat. It's her day to eat. Wow. I mean, let that sink in. What world do we live in where people are having to choose which day to eat? So that's the genesis of why the two brothers invented our technology was to feed everyone. So then you fast forward 10 years later, as we're rolling this out now, it hasn't changed. The heart and the mission behind our company is not to be, we will provide premium, high-end, very nutritious greens and produce because that's what some of the market demands. But the vast majority of the market just wants affordable, nutritious greens that aren't going to wilt in three days in their fridge because it's hard-earned money that they put towards those greens. If we can provide that, we have just made ourselves a long-term value creation company that can reliably feed, consistently feed large amounts of people. That, to me, is a company that I want to build. So these researchers, how did they come up with this technology? Were they academics who were working on this? One was a mechanical engineer and the other one was a construction engineer. And they, as brothers, just put their heads together and said, okay, what can we do with limited resources in a country like South Africa? How efficiently can we make something that will grow greens, grow them cheaply? And that's sustainable. And so they just put their heads to work and they came up with this tech. It's so unique that it's patented here in the United States and in a number of other countries. You literally will not find this anywhere else. Eden Green, is it only in the U.S.? Or is it there in South Africa and other countries? Right now, it's only in the United States. They brought it here to the United States for just commercialization and for they knew that's where larger pools of capital were to help grow this company. So for right now, we're here in the United States, but make no mistake, our vision is to have these greenhouses all over the world. So when you talk about greenhouses, I want to talk about one of our episodes. We had a guest from Sayers Greenhouse Solutions. I don't know if you heard about them. They don't really build greenhouses, but they give you plans to build greenhouses. And they are a very unique company in the way they use the heat from the ground to heat the air. And they have, they glaze their surfaces. And most greenhouses have a transparent either glass or plexiglass stuff or plastic on most sides. They actually have it. If I remember correctly, just on one side. Is yours something like that? Have you heard of them? And is your technology for greenhouses similar to theirs? Yeah. So we use a very, very reliable and standardized greenhouse manufacturer. It's actually based in France and they've been doing it for over 80 years. 
our differentiator is not the greenhouse. The greenhouse is merely the structure in which our technology resides. Our differentiator is in the technology inside those vines, those growing towers, if you will, that grow all these plant spots. That's our patented technology. You know, you have a lot of these greenhouse and a lot of these technology providers that provide, you know, aspects of usage. The challenge is, can you do that commercially? Can you scale that? Can you rinse and repeat and stamp out greenhouse after greenhouse? And then who's going to operate it? So you've got a great shiny structure. Who's going to grow the greens inside? And can you do that on a commercial scale repetitively to provide a consistent experience for the end consumer? Technology is great. Execution is even better. What are the tools that you offer then to your customer, right? Because this is a completely new avenue for, say, Kroger to have or the other grocery stores to have. We own and operate all of our greenhouses. We supply the greens. Oh, that is incredible because I was visualizing them buying the kit from you and you providing. Listen, if you're going to grow 2 million pounds of leafy greens, there's no kit. This is a commercial operation. It would be as much as saying, hey, if you want to make your own cars, we'll sell you the car factory. That just doesn't exist. It doesn't make any economic, financial, organizational sense. The car factories own the cars. We own the greenhouses. We own and operate them and then supply the greens to our customers, which are the distributors, the growers themselves. We've got a couple of growers who their demand for their brand has outstripped their supply. So they want us to grow for them. Also, when you own all these greenhouses, you can move produce around wherever there is demand. So overall to reduce waste again. Correct. We had one distributor tell us, we are the first supplier that asks the question, where do you want these greens grown? Instead of asking the question, what can you buy from us in this certain location? We are very, at its essence, we are customer centric and we want to be where the population is. We want to be where the customers are and we want to grow what they want to eat. The one thing I've did not ask earlier is these parts in which you grow the plants, what are they made of? They're injection molded food grade plastic that will last, you know, 15 or 20 years. They're the same things that all of our produce crates are made out of. Like it's just, it's food grade industry standard injection molding. People may deride that, but the reality is there's no better material on earth to make these things as durable. And then from a, a chemical leakage type deal, there's, there's none of that because again, they're food grade. They're up to the highest standards of the EPA and the FDA. So Eden Green Technology is a startup, essentially. Do you have funding from VCs or from venture capitalists or did the founders and you put your own money? So Eden Green is funded by private investors and private equity. It continues to be well-funded. We've got deep pockets and a lot of capital behind us. Quiet capital, but capital nonetheless that want to see this success. I'm super fortunate. Our team is super fortunate that we have such great investors behind us. Are you able to disclose how much funding you've had till now, how much you've gotten till now? We've taken a little bit of a different route than your common startup, but I will say that total investments up to this point from the life of the company are over $50 million. I'm just so fascinated by this solution 
And my mind is churning with various applications, maybe even working with other mindful businesses guests. Have you partnered with anybody else? Like say somebody who is building low-income housing, you know, architects. Yeah. The great thing about our technology is, and our team is we know what we're good at and we know what we're not good at. We try to stay in our swim lane, so to speak, and really focus on our technology and growing really, really good nutritious greens. Because of that, just like any good technology provider who aspires to be a platform, which we are, we're a growing platform. We want to be able to plug in with other folks doing other things like solar farms, like business intelligence tools, like water reclamation you know, instruments, like sensors, automation, robotics. We just want them to plug into our system. So we've made our platform as open as possible so that other people can plug in. That's where we see ourselves as just being an open platform of growth that other businesses, either from the software or the hardware side, can plug into it and add and benefit the platform. On that very uplifting and fascinating note, thank you so much, Eddie, for coming on Mindful Businesses. It's been really a pleasure to have you on our show. Thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vidya Ayer. We would love to hear from you. Send a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pasricha. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.